Welcome to Talk About. On Talk About, our goal is to sit down with open-minded people for open and honest discussion. No judgment, no hidden agenda, just getting the conversation started. This week, we're joined by writer and comedian Bob Kerr. In this outstanding chat, Bob and I discuss our mutual love for horror movies, his amazing eight-year run as writer on the hit TV show This Hour Has 22 Minutes, and an intimate discussion about his struggles with anorexia and how important it is for him to share his story with others. Sit back and enjoy the show. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> right into the camera. Some McCafe on your end, some ethically sourced Arabica beans as we discussed before we got started. Mm -hmm. And I am going with the, um, the ever popular ethically sourced uh, water from Durham. Oh, good. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I do have some Hamilton tap water here as well. Oh, just, to, just to, you know, you have to drink water with your coffee or else yes. it's going to go. Yeah, it's no. not it's not good. It's not good for, um, you know, the, the scent that comes out of you as you're expelling some of these liquids. Yeah, so it's exactly. good to water it down. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, people don't talk about it, but coffee is a diuretic. So it sure know. is. And back when I was a smoker, that's a double whammy. Oh, really? The smoking impacted as well? Yeah, I think so. I think oh. smoking can yeah, mess with your system and that don't, your digestive system. Don't want any of that. We watched a movie on the weekend uh, called The Child Detective with uh, Adam Brody. Oh, I heard, I've heard uh, good things. Yeah. I, I suggest it, man. I, I yeah. was, uh, yeah, I, I was really impressed and I'm going to leave it at that because I don't like uh, kind of giving too much if somebody hasn't watched it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, check it out. I have heard about it and I am intrigued. So uh, hearing a second person endorse it is definitely the push I need. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the only thing I will say about that is they do have a little bit about um, the smell of urine. So it ties perfectly into this conversation and it'll become crystal clear when you watch it. I deal with that every day. You know, so. <laughs> well, listen, man, I, I just, uh, first of all, wanted to thank you very much for sitting down with me. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, no worries at all. You were recommended uh, by a mutual friend, a mutual associate who had uh, had said, hey, this guy, um, cool guy uh, from around the Petrolia area. And and in talking to you, I actually found out it's more specifically Wyoming, correct? Yep. Okay, cool. So Wyoming kid growing up, coming over to uh, the big T dot, the big Toronto yeah. And you're, you're a comedian, but when I asked you about how you describe yourself, because I've met enough entertainers to know that, you know what, the, these broad strokes of how to describe yourself doesn't necessarily encompass it. And the very first thing that you said was that you're a writer um, on top of being an actor, producer, story, consultant, and, and a bunch of things um, that, that you delve into. And, and I love it. It's, that's awesome. So you identify yourself as more of a writer first and foremost. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think that's, that's, I mean, it's definitely where I've made my living, but at the same time, you know, I, uh, as much as I've done uh, some of these other things and especially stand up and, and comedy, I have a love for and sketch comedy. Um, you know, writing has been in my bones since I was a kid. That's like, I read at a very early age and you know, um, I was kind of a loner growing up a little bit. Like I had some friends, but um, for the most part, I kept to myself and I was writing and I was writing these uh, like little horror stories because I was reading Stephen King a lot. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, and this sounds a little psychotic, but um, 
some of the horror stories I was writing, I was just putting my friends in because I couldn't, they were just already fully formed characters, my friends. So I didn't have to like create other characters. But you know, looking back on a situation like that where <laughs> you're seeing like real people being, uh, <laughs> you know, either murdered by a, a, a Jason Voorhees like character, uh, you know, there's like maybe <laughs> something that, you're like maybe this kid should go to therapy or something <laughs> but it really was just laziness it was I, I i i didn't know how to create characters back then so well they do say write what you know and yeah exactly but you... even then it wasn't like <laughs> i could have just changed their names and been like well this is this is dave to me but i'll name him sam you know like <laughs> i didn't you know and also, I guess I was just writing for me to read. Like, I wasn't showing it around. It was just for me. But And I, I guess I was trying to make it as purse. Like, I want to invest in these characters, and I want to feel sad when they die. So like, I have to I have to include my friends in them. <laughs> and it's just, like, a really demented thing. But uh, all this to say that, yeah, I mean, out of anything, comedy has been big in my life, but uh, writing is, and reading and writing is, like since I was two or three, I remember like impressing family members on my reading skills at a very early age. And I think because of that positive support, that's what always kept my love for reading going. Because I was like, well, people are paying attention to me. So yeah, I mean, writer, writer has just been, this has been such a long answer for that question. But, um, <laughs> I think it's been a perfect I'll, answer. I'll just say, I'll just say that. <laughs> Writing has been one of my biggest loves and one of my biggest hates at times, but mm. for the most part, loves. I think uh, I think it's awesome. Um, it's kind of funny because before we uh, came on air, I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, we could talk about a lot of different things. You know, we had already discussed, uh, you know, some some shows in the past, some movies and or music in the past, and I was like, oh mm -hmm. man, this weekend. We just finished up the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise because my girlfriend had never seen them. And I was oh, like, hmm, exciting. I wonder, wonder if he's a fan of... Oh, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, I grew up on those movies. Like, I Amazing. watched them when I was too young. I mean, my first exposure to that was Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Mm. Uh, we had um, the... We had the... It's called TMN now, the movie network, I guess. But mm -hmm. is it called that now? Was it was it pay TV back then? The little brown box. It was called First Choice. <gasps> First Choice. Yes. Do you remember First Choice? I do. Yeah, because that was have, the pay TV of the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, that was the pay TV. And for some reason, like, and and it's funny because we were actually a lower middle class family, but I guess we valued TV and movies enough that we would <laughs> pay premium on that. You know, <laughs> maybe that's why we had so much hamburger helper and canned soup for, for dinners. <laughs> but uh, I remember having that and watching and uh, just being obsessed. And I remember Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is my first memory. I'll say that. I could have watched a, one of them before, but my first memory was Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And I was blown away. I loved it so much. And uh, yeah, I consumed the other ones with great zeal. And, and, you know, admittedly, uh, they're not all good, uh, but I have, uh, you know, but you, we, I love bad things, even just because it's nostalgia. It's, it, it does that for me. So. I, uh, I absolutely uh, agree with, with the bad stuff. I mean, I've watched a lot of bad horror. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing I'll say about the Nightmare franchise is that 
it does something that not a lot of slasher uh not a lot of movies and franchises in the slasher category do which is they they actually try to do something different almost each time like if you get over to the friday movies the fridays you could probably take four or five of those movies and just make one movie out of it and and you wouldn't be missing uh anything or people trying to do anything with it no they Uh, did really start to try to have a through line through the series i mean whereas friday the 13th it's like well, how did he die in the last one? Well, that's, he's got, you know, if he's at the bottom of the lake in the last movie, he's going to be in the bottom of the lake at the beginning. And I don't even think they stayed true to that entirely. Yeah, you don't, you don't really, need no. to, which is a strength for them as well, you know. Sure, it's like people want to put their own brand on it and that's perfectly fine. Um, but yeah, like my, my first, uh, I love hearing your, your first uh, memory of, of uh, Nightmare because when I was regaling my my girlfriend with my first memory of nightmare was a, a living nightmare for me. Cause when I was a oh kid, I hated horror movies. I was terrified of horror yeah. movies, but this was a little bit of a, uh, a growth moment for me. I ended up watching the first one. We watched part one and uh, part one of that and part one of, of uh, Friday. And okay. I was terrified. Uh, I don't know what yeah. my mom was thinking. I don't know what my stepdad was thinking. How old but... were you? Jeez, man. I feel like I might've been like eight. This is funny because I feel like this might be an, you're, we're in a similar age. Yeah. You I'm 44. Yeah. And like... I'm 40. And I feel like, especially particularly back in the eighties, parents were just like very open to just showing their kids, whatever, you know, yeah. I remember yeah. we went to the theaters to see point break and I was a child and I feel like, that is not a child film it's not a child film but (laughs) i loved it and uh you know one of my heroes is um nick cave uh and i remember him talking about that he would have like an inappropriate movie time with his kids it was called inappropriate movie watching or something and he'd sit down with his kids and they would watch a movie that they shouldn't watch and i love that and honestly Movies were such a big part of my childhood, I think, because of that. It's not to say that we weren't also watching kid movies, but we we were. But I, I definitely, you know, I guess both you and I were <laughs> subject to, like, definitely some more, ad, like, stuff that was beyond our reckoning or whatever. Yeah, definitely not really on the uh, recommended list from the, you know, grade two and grade three teachers, mm-hmm. I don't think, right? But no. I kind of dig it too. I mean, I've struggled a lot with this over the years. Uh, the closest thing that I've had to a child at this point in time is my niece. I spent a lot of time with her as as a baby, as a toddler growing yeah. up. And I have horror figurines around here. So she actually really took to my Chucky uh, doll. She would yeah. carry it around. She would swaddle it. She would put it to bed. And I was like, I, I mean, I want to show her these movies, but I can't scar her at the age yeah. of four, can yeah. I? so maybe and so this is something that like i put myself you know in the future as as a father and go but i want my kids to watch these movies yeah i know trust me and i think that's why my mom plunked me because she liked that stuff oh yes yes well but it's interesting sorry i I know we're supposed to talk about me no but now we'll we'll get into that in a minute Yeah, yeah, yeah i'm curious when the shift happened for you of like you didn't like horror movies and all of a sudden now you're just a big horror fan so here it is. Uh, this is how I remember it. Uh, I like the I like the fact that you use that term because uh, it's it's all about how we remember things. 
right yeah. perspective. And you actually touch upon Absolutely. that in some of the things that we're going to get into after yeah. uh, that you've worked on your projects. But as a kid, watched those two movies, went outside, okay? Because I was like, I had enough. I had enough. I grabbed my BMX bike, okay? I had no brakes on the bike. Just just want to drive around, get out there. No, mm-hmm. I go outside. There's no kids around, okay? Mm-hmm. This is how I remember it. No kids yeah. around. Right. Overcast day. Darkest clouds that you've ever seen in your life. I'm pretty sure this, and it's during the day. This is how I remember it all. This is it. Freddie, Jason, coming to get me. I'm dead. Good boy. Guy that I was hanging out with at the time, he was a big horror fan. And when I would sleep over at his place, I would crash in his room. He would crash in the bedroom. He had a giant Freddy Krueger poster on the back of his door. Okay. And as yeah. a night, as a nightlight, oh, he had Lord. he had a Darth Vader bust that the lights would shoot out of the chest in different colors. Okay. Wow. Okay. This is the most terrifying setup yeah. for me to sleep in. Yeah. I, no, this is not ideal. It's not ideal. I don't know how old I am at this point in time. Probably, probably uh, anywhere from 12 to 14. All right. Cause this right. is a few years later. Yeah. I remember finally one day looking at the poster and verbally saying out loud, okay, Freddie, here we go. <laughs> I will make you a deal. I will cheer for you. I will encourage you and I will support you in your endeavors as long as you don't kill me. I will be your biggest fan. I will yeah. I will scream to the rooftops that Freddy Krueger is somebody that you should follow, somebody that you should listen to as long as you don't slice me in the middle of the night. And lo and behold, I woke up the next morning. So to me, that yeah. soul bond right there is wow. is what solidified it. And then and then from there it just became a thing, right? Obviously it's a paradigm shift and it just yeah. becomes a fun thing and you start to see the lightness that these slasher movies bring. And I, I honestly, I've been absorbed in horror ever since. Good for you, man. I really like that. I, I like that it's, I like how it's just a deal. Like it's a conscious. Just a contract. I mean? It's a contract, just, yeah. Just a verbal binding contract. so far contract. it's worked out for you. So far it's worked out. So I shared this little ditty with my girlfriend on the weekend and she's <laughs> like, well, I mean, so what does that mean for the future? I said, what it means for the future is that you're protected. Yeah. You're protected. Our offspring is protected. We're good. Oh, the contract goes. Uh, it's also, it just covers the whole. It parameter. just covers the whole gamut, especially the yeah. immediate family. And yep. then, and then there's some negotiation there, right? There's a little bit of room for negotiation. Cause I understand, listen, slashers got to do what a slashers got to do, right? Uh, slashers got slash. <laughs> so I mean, like, Hey, if they have to go after a friend or, or a distant relative, I mean, I would like to have a say, but I know at the end of the day that uh, I'm, I'm not a majority stockholder in, in this game, right? So sure. I, I've just got to let them do what they got to do. But uh, yeah, immediate family uh, right there, right there in the contract. So Good for you, you know, looking out for number one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so listen, we touched on perspective. I want to circle in on this and I want to yeah. circle back and I want to start focusing in on you. Uh, that was a great opening, by the way. I one of one of the more fun ones that I've had. So thank you for that. <laughs> you have focused in on writing, and you've and you've started to make your bones in writing a, a while yeah. back. Uh, more notably, for people out there, they're going to know that you wrote significantly for this hour has twenty two minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and you've done a lot of work there. Um, and then you've done which a, a show that I I'm familiar of. I haven't. Uh, watched it or, or listened to it, but uh, but I'm Chris Jericho, 
as well. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I had a friend who was working on a component of that. I have no idea which component of it it was, but um, it's neither here okay. nor there. Sure. Um, but yeah, so you focused in on, on this. Now, how did you end up getting over to this hour has 22 minutes? Because when people hear that, they're going to be like, oh my God, this guy's, this guy's big time. Like talk about, and Chris have landed the catch of the century. Um, so yeah. how do you, how do you um, I certainly address don't that? feel that way, but um, <laughs> <laughs> how did I land that? I, okay. So I, you know, I'll try to make this as uh, quick as possible. I went to, um, so yeah, I moved out of the small town of Wyoming. Uh, to go to Humber College for comedy writing and performance. And there I spent the next two years, you know, in the big city, starry-eyed and rosy-cheeked. And I started, you know, doing stand-up. I made some friends there. We formed a sketch troupe. And then uh, years later, also, I mean, I was just struggling the whole time, like learning how to work jobs. Um, and... Uh, then our sketch troupe amalgamated with another sketch troupe and we decided to make a sort of a Saturday night live replica, you know, and call it Sunday night live. We would do it Sunday nights. Um, and since we were a sketch troupe of guys, it was seven of us all together and it was all men. We had to bring some women in because, sorry, not had to, but we wanted to because, uh, um, because it was important to have women in it. And um, we did that for a couple of years, but we also would have these industry type shows where we would perform in front of, you know, whoever was in the industry that was interested in seeing us. But at the same time, I mean, we were writing and producing and performing a new show every Sunday with a guest host, uh, a celebrity guest host, which would be either a prominent comic that was in the town or you know we've also had i think chris jericho well, he did host one time we had snow host you know uh, i gotta stop you there for one second because yeah. snow that's an interesting one um we were listening yeah. to some some old rap uh a few a couple months ago and and i had mentioned yeah to my girlfriend you know are you are you do you know snow and we started looking into him and it, some stuff went down with him i think yeah i think he was in prison when informer became a hit like yeah yeah (laughs) there was some kind of like i think it was attempted murder or or something along those lines it was some pretty serious yeah yeah yeah, interesting so So would this have been before or after that oh it was definitely after definitely after okay back in 2004 or something like that that okay i mean my there's a spider coming down oh uh, i don't see it yet <laughs> no, i don't know if you will but i he's now caught my attention um i'm just gonna move him yeah yeah i mean there's there's no need for there's no need for that no no that's it sorry so take two it's, i uh oh by the way i'm leaving that in yeah <laughs> We did a, so, but I, uh, sorry, for Sunday Night Live, I, out of the gate when we formed the show, I said that I wanted to do the anchor for a weekend update. Um, I, Cause that was always my favorite part of Saturday Night Live was the jokes, particularly when Norm MacDonald did it, but yeah. also Kevin Nealon, uh, like I just had so much love for that segment. So 
that's where I really started to, and at that time, I think it was Tina Fey and maybe Jimmy Fallon. I, like, I don't know, but Tina Fey obviously is like one of the, the top echelon of, of SNL anchors as far as I'm concerned, because she worked well with Jimmy Fallon and Amy Poehler. Um, like she could have, she could have made anybody look good. Besides yeah, that, I think. Totally agree with that. Um, so I remember like at my temp job, I printed out scads of like uh, SNL weekend update jokes. There was a page that had a bunch, like a library of them. And I printed out, I think maybe 50 pages using the, on the, on the government dime. <laughs> and uh, I just studied it and, and read it and ate it up. And I started writing and I was like, oh, it's simple. It's just, here's the information and that that's the setup. And now the, the twist, and I'm not going to say, I, you know, and I think that actually helped me, it helped me big time with getting onto 22 minutes the first time, because nobody is just sitting around writing news jokes mm-hmm. at that, at that point, they, they are now on Twitter, but this is before Twitter and before Facebook and even MySpace. Um, so pe- people weren't sitting around writing news jokes um for fun you know uh so that really helped me get in there and uh so when i i did a show and mark farrell who was a showrunner at that point um and anton leo who i think at that time was the head of cbc comedy department um they were in the audience and then mark farrell came up to me afterwards he was like hi i'm mark farrell and i was like uh i know who you are (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'd, I said to my agent who was new at that point, like, I think we were only together for two or three months. She asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I wanted to write for 22 minutes. And um, he said, uh, you're great. I didn't know he was there. And luckily, I didn't know he was there because I feel like my anxiety would have not done me any favors. So, yeah, I sent in a package and then they brought me on. And so then I was kind of on and off with them for four years and then they brought me on full-time after that and i had worked there for altogether eight years wow so when when you're on and off is that is that similar to like um i don't want to say contract but is that is it piecework how does that work it is sort of it's contract i mean when you're starting out especially when they bring you on you are on a trial basis and that usually is like either two weeks or three weeks or some other exceptions uh, if, if maybe you're more established, it might be a bit longer, but it is to see, you know, if you gel with the, with the other writers, but also, you know, does your stuff get in? That's the important thing is, can you write mm-hmm. for the show? <clears throat> and I think at that point I could write for that show, uh, especially in the joke, the news joke department. And I was there for about three months and then they let me go because I stopped <laughs> generating stuff. Uh, you know, I came out of the gate swinging and then, uh, and then I just sort of became a dud after, after a little while. And then they brought me back like two years later for three weeks. Uh, I did my time there and then went back home. And then uh, two years after that, uh, a different showrunner who I had worked with two years prior, who was just a writer, but then he, now he was a showrunner. Uh, wanted to bring me in um and he this it was difficult because he had me on a trial for so it was a short order season it was only 13 episodes i was on trial on a trial run first they brought me in for five weeks and then it was three weeks renewed every time after that and 
it was like so it was tough because it's like I was always like when my time could be up at any point you know it was tough I'll that's got to be that. very that was difficult the hardest season I ever worked for. Yeah, that's got to be hard to keep the uh, the creative juices flowing at that point in time if you're kind of running with that bit of uh, fear and anxiety in you. I think when you first start out, that kind of thing is always in the back of your head. I mean, there's obviously some people that are just very confident in themselves, but I mean, there are typically that's not how it goes. And I've seen it with new writers and some of them just internalize it like I did. And then other people will talk talk it out a little bit more. And I was definitely an ear for that because I had, I was, you know, that was something that I had experienced. So, and I saw, yeah, I saw different shades of it and anxiety and that kind of stuff can come out and insecurity, especially can come out in different ways. Mm -hmm. In some ways are actually a bit more destructive and makes a, can can make a person uh, be hard to be around, um, especially in a small writer's room. But for the most part, it does anxiety it either pushes you harder or uh, it just shuts you down. And I think for me, it was, it was a little bit of both. It did definitely push me, but it also was like, okay, think of something funny now. And you just, you, you can't, it's, it's not. You, and so in the back of my head, it's like, I'm being paid a paycheck to be funny. And I, I definitely wasn't being kind to myself. I was like, you fucking you gotta write something funny now because they are paying you and they're this is what you are supposed to do and if you can't write jokes and you're a comedy writer then what are you doing you know it was kind of like it was a very cyclical thing and yeah definitely there was elements of imposter syndrome that kicks in of like you know every time they renewed me i was like really and, and and I'd be like, at some point, they're going to figure me out, you know, like they're going to find out. <laughs> my my whole wish was like, I just go to this job, I keep my head down, and maybe they don't even know I am there. <laughs> you know? I just wanted to do my work, but disappear at the same time. It was uh, the first couple of years, it was definitely tough with that. And I'm not, and it's not to say that that didn't like, carry on there was definitely weeks where I had dry periods where you know later in my career with them uh where I just wasn't getting a lot produced and it feels worse in some ways because like I've been here for a while now like Mm -hmm. I, I should and there's that magic word should I should be getting stuff on you know more frequently uh it is it is a bit tough though because you are quote unquote competing and I I put that in quotes because we were all very like me and the writers we were tight you know we were all working in Halifax and you know a lot of us were just Toronto folk that were friends or or at least friendly and we bonded because we were in Halifax but there definitely was an an air of competition for me of like that I have to like try to get my stuff in but at the same time there there are nine or ten other writers who are also trying to get their stuff in you know, mm-hmm. and there's just not enough space. And then Mark Critch would have like three or four sketches that were great and they would just get in. So, so it was actually even less slots than that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was tough. It was tough. So yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that kind of pop into my mind when you hit that dry spell, which I can only imagine is, is even more difficult when you're 
when you're made to write something funny. I think that that's the thing that's always, I've always marveled at with, uh, with writers and com and comedians is that you literally, your job is to make people laugh. And, and for the most part, it's, you're looking in the faces of people, especially if you're doing stand up. you're looking in the faces of people that are daring you to make them laugh. Oh, yeah. um, but when Some you're in a room, sitting in the front row with our arms crossed, a hundred percent. And those are the ones that are usually dying at the end of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's yeah. been my, my observational experience in, in sure. those settings, Yeah. but you're in a room with other writers. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the complexity that I see with your story is that you actually want to be a writer. There's been so many yeah. comedians that I've met over the years that don't even classify themselves as being a writer. Even if writing is their skill, they want to be an entertainer. Yeah. Um, but you're in a room with people who are kind of vying for the position that you want to be in and solidify. Yeah. So is that an added source of pressure for you? And then how the hell do you shed that pressure so your brain can be free to be creative? It's interesting. I think that we were, there was so much camaraderie in the writing room that I never really felt like there was someone, quote, you know, like after me or like, you, you know, like I was a senior writer by, well, the end of my tenure, I was a senior writer. I mean, I wouldn't be credited as such, but I've been there for eight years. But it wasn't like I was looking over my shoulder or anything. And I wasn't possessive about anything. Um, I, I just wanted to work. And I don't even remember, like, they had me do for a couple of years, they had me do the web, a web portion of 22 Minutes. It was a bite-sized part of the show where I was the anchor at the desk doing jokes and I, I write and sometimes somebody else would help me write and I do some jokes or I do a little sketch with somebody. And I remember just like being annoyed doing it because I just wanted to, again, I just wanted to disappear and write. That's kind of like my happy place. And, yeah. and it was like, if I'm doing this, then it's taking me away from putting my stamp on this week's episode. It was a really weird thinking. Whereas other people would be like, I mean, fuck yeah, I'll, I'll, sure you know it's a great opportunity but for me it was just like i had i guess i had such anxiety just even around my own writing and my own work that i i i wasn't even appreciating all the all the bonuses that were being thrown my way you know fair it's a I it's a very i almost saw them as obstacles yeah yeah but it's so interesting though because it does seem like in in a lot of ways um if you might have switched the perspective a little bit, you probably had a clearer idea of what you wanted to do more than some of the other people that you're working with. Perhaps. I mean, like, it's difficult to say because, again, my head was so far up my ass as far as, like, how I viewed myself in the community and how and what the reality was. I think they're, you know, it's a Venn diagram, right? How I see me, how people see me. And it's, there's, like, a little bit of that gray area. But in some ways it was clear in other ways it was definitely not clear and i remember like the idea of entitlement i didn't even have it and i'm and i'm saying entitlement in a good way i'm saying like you know i'm a good writer and i'm entitled to this i remember like if you know coming back from a season if they raised you know they would have to raise it i think as per contract they would have to raise it. but if sometimes if the raise was big I would be like, okay, well, shit, now I have to prove that I am worth that. And I remember and, and, um, a girl I was dating at the time, I remember saying that to her and she was like, they're paying you because you're worth that. Like you've already proven it. And I'd never even thought of it that way, you know? Wow. 
Yeah. So I, I feel like, again, when we talk about perception, it's, it's like, it's, it's honestly very hard to, it was part of my challenge, uh, therapy help, but it was, it was hard to, to sort of do all those mental gymnastics of like writing comedy, but also trying to prove my self-worth and uh, not just to them, but, or prove my worth, not just to them, but to myself. And um, I, you know, sometimes I pat myself on the back for like, I, you know, I did pretty good, but it's like, I made it so hard on myself that whole yeah. time. But it also sounds like uh, it, it ties into what I'm start, what I was starting to see as uh, as a bit of your journey. Um, I was able to kind of go over to CBC. You had you had shot over the uh, doc project, CBC writings and and uh, and audios that you had done with them. And uh, we're going to get into that a little bit. But what I was noticing is that you very much seem like you're in a path of discovery that's probably gone uh, on for for a while now. Um, you, you delve into, and I can't wait to talk to you about this in more detail, but you delve into an eating disorder that you had, Mm -hmm. which I find fascinating. You delve into religion, uh, conversation, religious conversations that you had with your dad, with him being a very religious person and you not, um, and, and you even touch in romance and what you learn from romantic gestures that we see kind of portrayed in movies and TV (laughs) shows, and then how the reality comes of that. But in, the whole time I'm listening to all of this, uh, all I'm thinking about is how it relates to um, a self-discovery journey that I myself have been on and anybody that has any kind of ideas uh, of delving into themselves more and more, because that's what it, it seems like you're doing. Have, yeah. have, you, have you gone back and looked at your writing days with 22 minutes and your journey with writing to see and, and kind of uh, understand yourself a little bit more? from what you were going through at the time and, and where you are now as well? I don't know. I, I don't actually really look back on what I wrote, to be honest. Um, cool. But I do think, and I, I've uh, been talking to some people about it, but a lot of the stuff that I wrote for 22 Minutes wasn't political. I, I wasn't a political guy. It was more like social commentary stuff or like ad parodies uh, that sort of made a comment. Um, and that's not very introspective. I mean, I think there was maybe some elements of, of this is what I think is funny about me and how I work. And maybe I can put that into something and maybe ultimately that's relatable. But, you know, I think there is a facet of comedy that has that where it's, it's a bit, it can be navel gazing a little bit in a good way, I think. But like there, when I started out, it definitely was, I think it's, people do this and it's stupid. You know, <laughs> I don't do this. Everybody else does this and it's stupid. I want to comment on that. And now it's just more like, <clears throat> these are the stupid things that I have definitely done or thought, or this doesn't make sense. Um, And I certainly have, especially with when I started doing therapy, um, recognizing my own patterns of like destructive patterns. Yeah. I started paying attention to myself a lot more and, um, and that might've helped inform my comedy, especially in my later years. But it's funny because the older I get, I'm definitely still so curious on the stuff that I, how I am and who I am. And I think I'm not, I've always been, I've always tried to do my best to be self-aware. You know what I mean? To have Hmm. some self-awareness. And I think, (laughs) I think you can have too much self-awareness, but um, yeah, I've definitely been more, more and more interested in in how I operate because I don't fully understand it. 
I mean, it's, it's such a, a journey that I agree. Um, people can be too self-aware. Um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily useful. Oh, I can uh, tell you, like when I was, sometimes when I would do therapy, right, with my therapist, sometimes I would say something and then I would immediately just, anal- like I would do, quote unquote, what I think their job is, just try to get ahead of them. And it's like, I should just shut up and let them do their job. <laughs> And help me understand it because I'm twisting it already, you know, yeah. to yeah. how I understand it. And that might not necessarily be the, the full picture. But I think that that's where, uh, that's where therapists really thrive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not magic, right? Like they're not, they're not magicians. No. Uh, they, they basically just listen to you and or let you go. Yeah. And, and figure it out yourself or at least work through what it is that's kind of muddling up your thoughts at that point in time. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, we had a foster dog recently um, who was, uh, he was difficult um, and he was very leash reactive. So he would just like bark at other dogs and like lunge at them and stuff. And we, we would try to keep him away. And, and then I guess we didn't socialize him. So now we just thought everybody was a threat. And it made me think about like how that happens with people and, you know, um, the things that I think or, or beliefs that I have that from my youth that I carry with me sort of inform, inform how I think and, and how I, you know, operate in the world. And it, and it's stuff that I've taken from a person to people that are human beings and mm-hmm. who are not perfect, that they're also flawed. And, and there's some of those values that I absolutely cherish and, and, you know, but, at the same time, it's like, there's a level of, at, at some point, you just sort of have to take agency of things that maybe don't gel anymore, you know, mm-hmm. so. let, let, uh, let some things go. It's a, it's yeah, a level yeah, of absolutely. acceptance, right? And not even like, I, obviously, I don't blame my parents for any, like any mistakes or anything. It, it's, it's, it's recognizing it. And then saying, like, I have to move beyond this, because this is not, who I am anymore. Yeah. And it doesn't serve you if you let it fester. This has been my experience. You know, you can, you can search for the answers of why everything is exactly the way it is. Chances are you're not going to arrive at one particular answer because the reality is that if you're on this planet for any length of time, it's going to be a multitude of things that are going to impact you and the way that you walk around this planet. Um, And, and the things that are going to inform your decisions and then it's the stories that you tell. And then it's the way this goes and yeah. that and the other thing. And then you're just left with any, any one of a hundred variables that actually inform the way that you're thinking about something now. Yeah. One of the things that I've been doing a lot is going back, especially with COVID, going back and watching old shows and old movies, mm-hmm. uh, especially ones that I particularly remember not liking. And going right. okay, let's let's check this out and see why I didn't like this because it was a piece of shit film. That's yeah. what Chris said twenty five years ago. Yeah, because I'm an I'm an expert, right? This yeah. this is garbage, and I watch it now and I go, oh my god, I didn't understand what the hell they were doing with this. That's so funny because I did that with music. I did that recently. Oh, yes, with you've R. been on e. a great dive with REM. Yeah, REM and REM was a band where it's like I recognize they had a couple good songs. Uh, I mean, I, I remember liking, you know, I like losing your religion. Um, Man on the Moon, I was like kind of sick of because I was just hearing it too much. But um, and I thought the, that movie was 
okay. Like I remember like liking that movie. And I remember seeing it a couple more times. And I'm like, I, I'm just done with this thing. Um, but uh, I went on a deep dive on IM because I had my own prejudices about that band just because of the singles. And I, for the most part, just didn't really care about them. Uh, and I went album by album and I wrote a little nice little review on Facebook of what I felt about the album. I tried to keep it positive and just focus on the good things. And uh, it really opened my eyes to like, holy shit, this band is amazing. And they're beloved for a very good reason because it's there are great songs that nobody knows about. Sorry, uh, that casual fans of R.E.M. do not know about, you know. Um, and I've never done a deep dive on a band like that ever. You know, I never tried to consciously try to appreciate a band that I never liked. <laughs> and uh, it's been a, it's, I loved it. It was actually a very fun experience. I, I love the fact that you did that because, uh, and I think we touched upon this when in, in our first uh, mini chat or intro chat, um, because I had done the same thing. I, I've been uh, going down this, uh, this rabbit hole of uh, heavy metal. I wanted to know yeah. kind of who the founders of heavy metal were. Sure. And, you know, so these bands were coming up like Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. Oh my God, and yes. and I was like, you know what? I mean, I grew up listening. I, I grew up hearing of these bands, right? Yeah. Uh, my stepdad would listen to them and I was like, ah, I don't there. I can't do this. And Is I did because exactly. it was your dad? Is it because it was uh, no, it was you know, music? So it was like it wasn't attainable to my ear as a okay. child. Yeah. Right. Like my mom loved the Beatles, lo loved Elvis. Right. So yeah. when you're hearing these uh, docile, beautiful tones kind of ringing across your ears Absolutely. and I grew up, you know, loving rap, like rap was my thing as a kid. Um, I was just trying to, I think I was trying to kind of find my own way. Yeah. But my stepdad's thing was always classic rock. You know, ACDC yeah. was cool to me, but when you started to get into Sabbath and, and deep purple to me, didn't make any sense. Um, That's so, so funny. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I actually, in the beginning of the pandemic, got into Deep Purple. Oh, are you out serious? Of, just, just out of, I, I don't even know why, just out of like, hey, everybody talks about this band. Maybe I'll give it a listen. And what and, were your thoughts on them? Uh, I love them. I, I mean, they're amazing. They're so good. The, uh, God, I don't know the name of the vocalist, but his, especially on the song Child in Time. Do you know that song? Yes, I do. It's like a 10 minute song, but his vocal, his vocals are crazy like they go up there so and for me it was like this is like chris cornell like level of like jesus christ pose like his vocals are just soaring and i it was like you know it was something i hadn't heard in a long time and you know they're a band that is just they are more than smoke on the water they are there's a lot of great music in there. And uh, I even listened to their latest album that they put out like maybe a year ago and it's fantastic. Like they still got it. Yeah. It's uh, it's also really fun. Cause I've always been a big fan of going back and finding out what these bands were doing at the beginning and then yeah. how they morph and seeing and yeah. seeing that metamorphosis metamorphosis come through and, and with purple going, you know, flower, like the flower and love era yeah, yeah. Um, through becoming, you know, one of the godfathers of heavy metal. I wanted yeah. to see what that transition was like. And you're right. I mean, just exactly what you're saying about REM. Uh, there are so many songs in there that when people say, and I, I don't know why I take it personally, but every once in a while, when I hear somebody say, Oh man, 
oh, I love this band. You know, I love Tragically Hip. And I've I've never been like a massive hip fan. I like sure. hip, yeah, but yeah. I've never been the ones that like, oh my God, they're the greatest. Yeah. And then every once in a while, you hear a song that hasn't been played a million times on the radio. And you're like, yes, they actually are brilliant. But yeah. you don't oh, know yeah. why they're brilliant no, until no. you go back and listen to them. <laughs> I think that, yeah. And listen, I think because again, you and I are of a similar, we're of the same era. And yeah. this is back in a time during, you know you had to pay 20 some odd dollars at sam the record man to get a cd like it was ridiculous i had to like wash my dad's truck just to afford a cd and uh, and i remember the first so i think that you know we value music in a different way than people can like we definitely consumed it differently than people consume it now yeah because it is definitely something you just like, you, you can put on the background while you're doing your dishes, but, but like it, people can access that thing now. Yeah. So to me, I think the first glimmer of that was like Columbia House, where I remember what, when I get oh. like 13 CDs for a penny. And I remember the 13 CDs would come in and I would just not give a shit about 12 of those CDs, you know? Absolutely. Because it's just too much at once, you know? Um, and now it's just like it's everything all at once and I started collecting vinyl again because it's like I just need to get I it helps me cherish music more when I buy something that is tangible and in my hands and I've spent money on that's, that's a not the same point that's not to say that I don't still have Spotify and stuff that stuff is still important to me but um, it's a it's a bit more of a, an experience that I missed having as a kid that I can now sort of revisit as someone who buys vinyl. I love that because one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is uh, I, I used to love getting the CDs and I would be um, disappointed if the sleeve didn't have the words in it because I would literally sit there listen I, to this. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Saying. I, I adore, they need to have lyrics and I, yes. I am so disappointed when they don't. Yes, have because I've got songs that are stuck in my head that I heard for the first time when I was 12. Yeah. And now I listen to songs now and exactly what you're saying, as easy as these songs are at our fingertips, uh, they, they disappear out of your mind as quickly as possible. Um, and the lyrics, I'm sitting there going, mm, mm, I love this song, yeah. man. And then I want to <laughs> sing to it, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> we're discovering so many cool bands now because my girlfriend is a very, like, she's uh, she's a goth, uh, a goth girl. So she likes, yeah. you know, the, the goth music and, and darker stuff there. But we're also Did she listen really... to Nick Cave? Because that would be yes, right. Yes, when you said Nick Cave, yeah, yeah. she's going she's gonna to love that shout out. <laughs> but she was, she actually introduced me to Skinny Puppy. Oh, so that's more industrial goth. Yeah. yeah, industrial. That was the word they, I was looking are for. Are they uh, Canadian? They are Skinny Canadian. Puppy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Also, pretty much the founders of of uh, industrial. Right? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. was really cool. So I one thought of that the, would be Ministry, but maybe Ministry was the first one who popularized it. I think, yeah, and I think yeah. that they came a little bit afterwards. She would be able to speak to that a hell of a lot more. She's yeah, been yeah, introducing yeah. all of these bands to me, but I think that was my first. Uh, that was my first test was right. she was like, I like industrial. And I'm like, well, I like horror movies. We got to be, we're a match made in heaven. <laughs> and so I was like, each other, yeah. yeah. And so I was like, well, let's check out this skinny puppy band then and see what's in it. Cause right. I, I remember hearing about the name when I was younger, but I also remember a lot of screaming um, and, yeah. and that was about it. Sure. And I gotta be honest, man, I threw it on and I'm glad that I found it in my forties because I can really appreciate what they're doing. Well, you, yeah, you, did you, did you throw on a specific album? I started right at the beginning, man. Okay, I went right, so right to album number I'm one. I'm going to check that out because I'm curious. Check it out. Yeah. yeah. 
one of the things that's really interesting about industrial, and I do promise we're going to get to talking about you more as well, uh, but this is the way this goes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the thing I find very interesting about industrial is it really is a, a mishmash of horror, right? I mean, they use yeah. a lot of samples. Uh, they are using a lot of samples from horror movies, sci-fi movies and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of sounds there. And it's so dark I was, too. It's always it's dark. super dark, super yeah. dark. And some of it I still can't tolerate at this point in time sure, it's not yeah. palatable to me i'm not but... actively seeking out industrial stuff but like mm -hmm. uh you know like i love nine inch nails for example but i feel oh. like it almost transcends industrial to, to a point you know so nine inch nails is so funny to me because i always i i never knew what they were considered i never knew if yeah. um you know is is resner a sellout i hate that term but mm -hmm. that's the way people is are is he yeah. a sellout because he does all sorts of different things and my my opinion of him has changed significantly over the past five years just being like this this guy's just an amazing artist he's an artist to the yeah. core like Absolutely. the stuff that and prolific as all get out i mean my god he did the soundtrack to soul for god's sake i know a, man a disney movie so and i it's mean so it's so it, like it 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 gets inside of you absolutely and, and rearranges your yeah your your insides it's yeah it's crazy what he does with with sounds and and his the way that he structures his tones it's it's unbelievable I know. Yeah, I agree. And um, Down the Spiral and then The Fragile are two albums that are were big in my youth and, you know, in my 20s more so. But like, that's, I mean, I maybe that's as most more as industrial as I've gotten. I mean, I guess a little bit of Rammstein, but like, yeah. I, I don't know if like people who are hardcore industrial fans like your girlfriend are like rolling their eyes to these uh, band names, but you know. Like, well, uh, what she about actually, Kong, you know, <laughs> yeah, she actually loves uh, Ramstein or Stein or however, however you say it. it. Yeah, I think it I don't know. It doesn't matter. But I tried to go down that that rabbit hole and I, I didn't find a whole lot there. Um, yeah. Although that they're crazy as fuck. Yeah, those guys. I mean, they're just absolute nutcases certifiable sure. but yeah you know they're having fun they're doing their thing and they're uh, once again artists and and yep. they're great at what they do absolutely i think my earliest so i, I always kind of brushed up against industrial or or even yeah. heavy metal and, and my my early brush ups against them were marilyn manson um you know even some some zombie uh back in the day which i still like yeah. going on and listening to and, and then nine inch nails and that's as far as i would go i wouldn't go past that i I suggest yeah, I listen to a lot of Metallica, but 90s Metallica is not really metal. It's more no. hard rock, you know. Yeah. So. Metallica is such a funny band, right? Because I remember finding them probably around the same time you did. And it yeah. was it was the black album for me that, yeah, that me I too, found. Yeah. Right. But Better at that Sandman point it was like, oh, yeah, everywhere. Oh, I mean, just like that whole album, I would play it back and forth, back and forth, back yeah, and forth. Yeah. Just throw it on, man. I don't, I don't care. I, at that point in time, I was, you know, if it was a summer, summer vacation, I was sitting in the, I was at the apartment at home, yeah. living at home, throwing that on. I'd be like doing yeah. dishes and shit, cleaning the house yeah. to, to the black album. Yeah. And all I'm hearing from the Metallica fans is this album sucks. They're mm -hmm. sellouts. This is garbage. This isn't who they are. Yeah. And I went, tried to back, go back and listen to their older stuff at that point. And I was like, I can't listen to this. It's too, this is too much, but it's too metal. It's too metal. But now I got to say, man, 
you know, throwing on, uh, throwing on whiskey and the gyro and, and, and all that type of stuff now. Whiskey like, and the like, gyro. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Whiskey in the jar. Jar. Boy, whiskey. Gyro. I can't imagine having whiskey in a gyro, I guess. Oh, Jesus. I feel like it would just fall. Is that it? Is a gyro? It's, that's like a, a gyro, right? Like a gyro? That's what gyro. I was thinking. A gyro? Yeah. A gyro? Yeah. Maybe you could just coat the meat with it. I think so, yeah. It'd be a fine. Bourbon, a whiskey bourbon. You, you have it in a, a foil anyways, yeah. right? So you just basically have a concoction of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that's oh, so yeah. I, I was interrupting. No. The whiskey in the jar. You, yeah, yeah. That shows you how much of a Metallica fan I am. Hardcore to the uh, rate, rate to the gills. Man. I do actually really love, uh, I do enjoy Metallica quite a bit. And uh, even some of their later stuff. And I have a soft spot for like uh, a, an album like Load, which actually was more prevalent in my teens than say mm -hmm. the Black album. And I know Load is an album that like Metallica fans would be like, that's a piece of shit. And I, I get it. Cause I also like those earlier albums too. I have such a, profound appreciation for ride the lightning and master of puppets and 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 i recognize how great those songs are but yeah i i think back in the day i probably felt the same way you do when i was listening to like say something in justice for all it's like yeah i get it but it doesn't sound like the black album to me like i can't yeah. latch on to anything and now as someone who's a taste of maybe matured a little bit it's like there's like you know that album justice for all specifically is there's so much music musicianship in there that it's fucking crazy like time signatures are all over the place there's a lot of classical influences in there there's no bass they took the bass out which uh i feel like they need to re-release it with the bass in and give uh jason newstead his due but i mean whatever we are so off topic i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> side tangents are par yeah. for the course with with this episode it's it's not a problem but hey listen we're we were talking about perspective i mean that that's one of the yeah. that's one of the ideas that we're we're fleshing out right. here and i started i listened to you sent me over the doc projects that you did with cbc yeah. and uh and at first i went against what you told me to do which is don't read the the <laughs> that's fine. I'm I read it self-conscious about those, but yeah, I read it and I was like, this is really cool, man. This is great. Yeah. I read, I read through all three of them and then I listened uh, to the audios and I was like, okay, so you start to get a, a rounded picture, but I mean, doing both was great. And um, you get into some really personal things here and, and you come into some, some perspective and some, some aha moments, it seems like. Yeah. as i'm as i'm listening to these things so the the three are and i highly suggest that people go uh you can find this on cbc radio i believe yeah CB, yep if you go on the cbc boy maybe if you type in doc project doc project maybe there's if there's a search bar that has my name on i haven't done that but well i'm going to include it in the uh in the episode yeah, notes okay, for this yeah. so that way people can find sure. it because i'll be honest with you uh people people especially in our age um you know where where they might be reflecting but yeah. people of any age in my opinion should hear these things because you know we touch a little bit about, about anxiety um you know we're, we're not going to focus super like super hard on on anxiety a lot of people do suffer from yeah. anxiety in, in a lot of different ways um, but you also start touching on things that, that really caught my attention and you talk about food disorders in one of them. Yeah. So you, you're the, the one story yeah. is, uh, you know, my, my experience with anxiety or with, uh, anorexia. And when I, 
when I read it at first, I was like, oh, he's a comedian. You know, this will be a little funny, you know, a little funny uh, ditty about, you know, food and, you know, being uncomfortable with it. And, Mm -hmm. and holy shit, man, like (laughs) you get into it. Yeah. This, like you, you talk about, and and I will get you to, to elaborate a little bit more, but you get into you and your brother um, and, and how different you and your brother were, you know, you, you describe yourself as somebody who uh, preferred to, you know, sit back, watch TV, maybe indulge in some, some uh, junk food as, as I sure the hell did. I, I was, I was a pretty, as pretty portly child myself. Um, And, but your brother was a straight A student, very athletic. And uh, you start touching on, you know, his hang up that he had um, when he was younger uh, with with food and and you get into later when you hit college uh, you actually develop anorexia uh, and and I thought that I thought it was amazing first of all that a man is talking about his triumph you know his yeah. trials and tribulations but triumph ultimately uh, and learning experience with with a food disorder because I've never actually talked to a, a male that's had a food um, you know, had a, right. a disorder, eating disorder. Well, you never know. You might have. They just yeah, and, and this is it, right? And and I think I love the fact that you're talking about it now, mm-hmm. um, because I think that now is the time to be talking about everything. I agree. Get it, get it all out there because yeah. you don't know who you're exactly right. You don't know who you're talking to right now that may be suffering on the inside. Is one one of the inspirations for doing something like this is that I want people to realize you're not alone. So. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and, and maybe, you know, what, how you remember it transforming and, and what you feel you've learned at this point in your life and thinking back about it? Um, yeah, so I was in college. So just sort of, uh, to give sort of like a Coles notes to your listeners, I was in college and it was in between. Oh, okay. So I was in college in Sarnia. That's what happened. I went, I've been to two colleges, Lambton College in Sarnia and then Humber College in Toronto. And uh, Lambton College, I took Media Fundamentals, which is, you know, radio, television, broadcasting, and journalism, broadcasting, I guess. The, the whole gamut. Um, the fundamentals, as you will. And I remember having a crush, a very visceral crush on a girl, and I couldn't eat. And I, I, I was a chubby kid. I was, I was like, at that point, I guess I would have been 19. I was about 220 pounds, you know? And um, I remember I just couldn't eat because I was just, and, and I'm also one of those people that just doesn't like ask somebody out. It's just, <laughs> I'm, too, I'm, I'm a scared guy. Uh, so I just brooded, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I remember not eating. And then I remember some people like friends saying, hey, have you lost weight? I was getting like positive, like you look good. And I was getting sort of this positive, you know, sort of feedback. And um, it just sort of spiraled to the point of it. And then uh, I remember I, I asked this girl, I finally got the courage. And I think part of it had to do with me losing weight and maybe, you know, looking to myself more attractive or something. But, um, you know, that day didn't go out. We watched Pitch Black and <laughs> it didn't work out. Uh, I remember saying like, so I, I like you and she's like oh thanks <laughs> and that was that that was the end of it but um then I went to Toronto uh and sort of and I, it, it was something that was just super prevalent in the back of my head that like 
eating was, or, or I, I can't gain weight. I can't get fat again. And at that point I, you know, I was still a chubby kid, but it was like, um, it, it definitely became so bad in the summer between years. I was two years at Humber. So in the summer between it got really bad to the point where I was, I was not eating a lot. I wasn't taking in a lot of calories. I think I would consume maybe 500 calories a day, for example. And then I would bike a lot. Um, and I guess you might want to do a disclaimer, but at the same time, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get too deep into that weight loss stuff on, on CBC radio, because some of that stuff can be triggering to people who are, who are going through that stuff. Mm-hmm. And also you don't want to give them ideas, but mm-hmm. it was, I was not eating a lot and I was biking a ton and it got to the point where I'd, I would ask my father to like, you know, almost maybe every weekend or every other weekend to punch a new hole in my belt because uh, I was losing weight like crazy. Um, and, and, and it sort of feels weird to look back on that. And, and it's like so much of my behavior was unchecked because my parents were gone for the week for the most part. My father was a trucker and my mom started trucking with them. And so they were gone for, I had the house to myself. My brother was working all the time. I was not working because again, we were different. Um, and yeah, so my focus definitely became let's lose as much weight as possible so I can be ready for my second year at Humber. So I think in that summer, I lost a very significant amount of weight, I think maybe 40 or 50 pounds. Um, and that's a span of three or four months. And, uh, and I remember like when I got back, some people thought I was either sick or that I was <laughs> addicted to heroin or something because I just mm-hmm. I looked emaciated. But I almost treated it like a magic act, like I'd show people, you know, my old driver's license where I was like 200 some odd pounds and people would be like, oh my God. And I would revel in that. Like I would be, I was, I, I took everything as sort of positive reinforcement that I was doing something right, you know? And to me, it, I didn't regard it as anorexia because back then manly anorexia wasn't really a thing that was talked about. And this is early days of the internet still. I mean, the internet, it's like 2001 obviously the internet's around, but people weren't talking about that kind of stuff like male anorexia. Like it just wasn't in my purview at that point. It was just, I, I, I knew in my guts that I was, I was doing something that was not good, but I didn't realize how bad it was, you know? And, and then I'd noticed that I was losing hair, um, which is actually a sign of your body just sort of trying to, it's your, what did I read? It was like your body, like getting rid of some stuff because it needs nutrients elsewhere. Oh, so it's almost redirecting the nutrient, a little bit of nutrients. I think that you so. Have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, don't quote me on that, but mm-hmm. it, it is a sign of deterioration for sure. And, and malnutrition. I, yeah. So absolutely. I got down to, so my weight was at, by, at, at its worst, I think it was around 130 pounds. And, wow. um, yeah, I was like, if I sucked in my gut, I'd be like maybe <laughs> three switches this way. I mean, wow. it was really thin. And I look at pictures of myself back then and I'm ghostly pale, like I'm ashen. And it didn't help that I was bleaching my hair either, but I look like a ghost, you know, like a very emaciated ghost. And it's like, yeah. And I, and uh, so I really wanted to share that 
and talk about it because it it's just I still feel like it's something that's not talked about as much and, and it is a, such a and I know and no pun intended I know how consuming this thing can be like mm-hmm. it's your mentality and I, it ru- ruled my life I'm I'm I check myself in the mirror like 10 times a day I check the scales like five or six times a day if I if I even went up like a 0.5 pound from you know an hour later of when I check my weight weight if I went up 0.5 pounds even though I know it doesn't make sense and it's a digital scale and everything it, it would it would effectively ruin my mood you know wow. so yeah we had a mirror uh, like a, a long mirror in the kitchen every time I passed it I would do a side profile and see mm-hmm. how I was doing and the other the other part about it too is I lost weight so rapidly that there is loose skin you know um, and I would just say that think that that's just still fat and I would still have to work that off you know like I just wasn't computing things properly Mm -hmm. and I do remember thinking how low can I go like I I was almost very competitive about it how low can I go and I look back on that now and it's like well how low can I go till what you know (laughs) like what's the end game there and the end game is you just die. Like that's honestly, if you keep going down that path, you just die. And I do recall too, like if I ever had drinking nights where I got wasted and I check my weight the next day, for some reason I was lighter. So oh, I wow. also just drank more and um, it was just a destructive path. And I didn't talk about that stuff because again, it's like, we couldn't talk about, uh, I couldn't talk about stuff that I did to lose weight because I, you don't want to give ideas. So again, mm-hmm. you might want to add a disclaimer to your podcast about this stuff because it can be triggering to people that are maybe dealing with this stuff, but um, it is just sort of a more honest account, I guess, of what's what stuff that I, I couldn't say on a CBC radio. I, uh, first of all, thank you. I mean, um, I haven't experienced that I feel very fortunate not to have experienced yeah. that. I, I've I've experienced the um, the weight shaming uh, growing up as yeah. a, as a kid who was uh, chubby, um, yeah. and and that I I know how that can actually follow you for uh, a good part of your life because it wasn't up until probably about seven eight years ago that I finally shed the uh, the fat boy image. Yeah. But there's always still a, a voice in the back of my head that's like, okay, Chris, you gotta you gotta be careful. You don't want to be yep. that fatty, right? You have to uh-huh. really keep that thing in check because yeah, yeah, because shame. Um, and I've read so much about shame. Like I've read a lot of Brene Brown. I don't know if you've ever heard of Brene Brown, but no, I highly recommend her books. Okay, uh, she, she talks about shame and vulnerability. Um, and that's been a big eye opener for me. And I think that's also helped me to talk about this stuff more after reading that. It's, it's about owning your own stories instead of having somebody own them for you. Cause that's what shame is like, what was it? Like the difference between shame and like, I don't know. There's a difference between I did something wrong and shame is I am something wrong. I am wrong. Like, right. know, I did something bad versus I am bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I wanted to get those stories out because I wanted to own them. They're, they're a part of who I am. And um, and I did my best to come by it honestly as possible, you know. But uh, th- that voice that you're talking about is that's, I have had that voice and I still do to a certain degree that I, I keep in check. And honestly, I, you know, shame also, oddly enough, 
leads to overeating a lot you know like mm-hmm. people are like oh i'm just terrible uh even after you eat and then you say oh i'm uh, i'm just so weak you know and then that just leads to more of that behavior um mm-hmm. because you just feel bad you know and then when when you feel bad you look for stuff that makes you feel good you know and what makes you feel good is what ultimately tastes good so yeah that shot of dopamine you just need to yeah. get that into your system right yeah even though it's like super temporary uh and ultimately you just feel bad physically um yeah so i i try to be aware of that i'm not always aware of that um so i for now it's like working on self-compassion and i and i do with i would like to lose weight now and here's the difficult part i would like to lose weight uh or maybe that's not it just live a healthier life i think Mm -hmm. and it's and it's about sort of getting weight in my head so i'm still trying to figure that stuff out but i'm not I, i as somebody who has been anorexic and that's about 20 years now 20 years ago but um but i have a history of anorexia that i have to be very uh mindful of that stuff because i i never would say i'm out of the woods i would never say that i feel like it's easy to jump back you know and i think about someone like say philip seymour hoffman who used to be a heroin addict and then wasn't for 20 or 30 some odd years and then whatever happened and yet you know his life uh was tragically ended because of heroin you know you got back into it so mm-hmm. i don't take that stuff for granted i don't think I you can like, right yeah like it's a, it's a it is addiction um yeah. it's just addiction of a different form exactly and i feel like talking about that stuff openly is a part of healing as well and and not just the anorexia but those other stories is a part of healing and there is a catharsis. I think if more people were able to be honest about their own stories and about themselves and, you know, things that lapses in judgment even, or how they, you know, especially when we're entering a, an era of reconciliation to a point, uh, reconciliation, but also like towards different cultures, but also women, I think there's a lot of, reflection that needs to happen this particularly with people you know like straight white men like you and i people or people who have been in a you know a status of some sort a cultural status i think that one of the things that's very interesting and we're not going to elaborate on the other two stories i want to leave those for people to discover yeah okay. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll ride this out for for the rest of this episode because sure. i think this is uh, this is really cool uh with us growing up in very similar uh, time frames, uh, even though, you know, I grew up in Scarborough and you grew up in Wyoming, um, yeah. it seems as though our households were somewhat similar in terms of the way that um, maybe even some some uh, groups of people and or cultures might have been viewed. Um, yeah. in, in your dad's story, uh, which you entitle uh, my, dad's gay, uh, my, ga- my dad's gay nurse, which is, yeah. is a phenomenal uh, little story. And yeah. it's so full of insight in and of itself. It makes me realize that the people that did grow up in your yours and my era, the, the ones that are saying, well, I'm not racist and I'm not homophobic yeah. and I don't hate women. So why am I being penalized? 
Absolutely. was the generation that we grew up in and listening to these things. And I think that that's why it's so important that, that you and I and, and people of our age group are out there talking about it. Cause I, as much as millennials get shit on, um, yeah. you know, the early millennials, yes, maybe a little distorted, but the, the actual millennials are, are starting to get things right. And, yeah. and I think it's a great opportunity for, for people like you and I to be allies and say like, listen, guys, yeah, the, the stuff that has been put forward that women are not um, good enough or, you know, black people are inferior um, or, 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 you know, it, it's, it's all bullshit. There, there's little, oh, literally no proof um, to substantiate these claims, it's no. driven by fear. There's and proof to the contrary, for sure. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, you you go back into history, right? Like you just go just go deep, go deep. Don't don't go to the turn of the century. Don't go where where white people were founding North America, and yeah. and, and, and you know and kind of suppressing other people. And of course, in in the wake of what we're discovering even further now about schooling system um in bc and and stuff like that uh how natives were treated here uh we we it's it's amazing to me that we've never heard of this stuff i I know that you didn't learn about this in school because i sure the hell didn't i i didn't know any i didn't even know the term residential schools until uh gord downing to be honest you know when i learned it two and a half years ago i started getting curious about um uh, forced sterilizations and eugenics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. And, and yep. of course it was mo- mas- mo- mainly focused on the States, but then that led to residential schooling because that's yep. exactly what we were doing up here. And, and oh, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't understand it. Then my sister was doing a class uh, a year ago and she started talking to me about, Oh my God, we're watching these videos about residential schools. Have you heard about this? And I'm like, uh, oddly enough, I just did hear about this. And, and it's yeah. not like this is in hundreds of years ago. Yeah, this has been prevalent uh, in our time and in time before. And it's just, honestly, if this was something that we were proud about, why weren't we talking about it, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's definitely people recognized it even back then as a blemish because it wasn't talked about. Mm-hmm. But, it, but at the same time, it was sort of swept under the carpet. You know, if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. And to us, it didn't exist until yeah a couple years ago until we were like holy shit this is insane what's going on or what what happens um and you know people are now just uh they're they're tearing down statues and I, i'm actually listening listening to an audiobook uh in the convenient indian by thomas king hmm. and he says and i think i just heard this today that uh, history is just stories and that's what it is and and it's stories that is presented to us and it's definitely under certain lights you know what i mean like i think he's talking about general custer and it's like general custer's last stand we don't know really what happened there wasn't anybody there taking notes and what kind of role did general custer actually play and was he was he even that good of a leader because he he might have just been a fuck up we don't know but for some whatever reason it's he's the hero of that story you know whereas a lot of say in, 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 indigenous oh boy i have a hard time with that word it's a it's a muscle yeah yeah um but they don't figure that prominently in canadian or american history mm-hmm. outside of just being savages that that were taking uh and killing people and stuff um mm-hmm. 
and it's all it's just stories it's another it's stuff that's made up things there's stories that are shared that never happened so um i do think about it it was like an interesting thing to hear because definitely we have been fed a version of canada that is not precise it's not real and um it's it's a bit it's disillusioning for for sure and obviously i feel like the majority of canadians are disturbed by that by those bodies uh, of the indigenous kids being found and so yeah i i think now it's like especially people of privilege like white folk you know i think part of being an ally also requires us to do our due diligence in listening and um, learning and trying our best to understand that what those experiences are because that's just not our shared experience you know yeah yeah i i agree with you and and it's uh it's interesting because i've always been a big fan of history um and and i don't pretend to be a historian i I couldn't sit there and regale you with uh, all sorts of uh specifics and details but uh one of the things that I, i started becoming very disillusioned with history over the years is what you just touched on which is uh History is is just the stories that have survived, yes. and and generally speaking, of course, it's not going to be from the people who were, you know, displaced. Yeah. So when I take a look at that, that upset me for a long time. But when I take a look at that, and I look at what's happening now with all of these movements, uh, which I think are a very positive sign. I hope to hell that we continue to go in this direction, and I think there's a lot of momentum in a lot of different areas. But now is the time instead of instead of doing what people have done in the past, which is look at history and say, this is the way it's always been done. So we'll continue to do so. Justification. We can now take the little bits of history that we know, hopefully fill in some gaps um, from some of the voices and some of the literature that didn't get obliterated. Okay. So we can get a bit of a clearer picture, but really what we have to focus on is now. So we can look at a future that could be a hell of a lot better than what we've done thus far, man, because you know, listen, we fucked up in a lot of ways as a species, yeah. you know, we're, we're incredible. We're incredible at what we've done so far, but imagine what we could have done if there weren't these long gaps of people trying to wipe out knowledge yeah. and individuals simply because there's a different view or somebody just looks different yeah. yep. and somebody wants something. I think yeah. we literally could have it all if we, I know it sounds really hokey and I know it sounds very, you know, optimistic, but I think we really could have it all if we, we kind of pooled all our resources. There's no possible way that anything could stop us. I agree. Absolutely. So the way that I would wrap this up is again, I want to thank you um, for your time. Uh, No problem. Because this has been, you know, we've had a couple of conversations and some exchanges back and forth, but uh, it was so funny. I, I was, uh, I mentioned to Kat is, is my girlfriend. I, I mentioned mm-hmm. to Kat that we were meeting today and she was beaming. She's like, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear based on the way you talked about Bob after you guys met, this is going to be awesome. And uh, it's every bit as awesome as I expected it to be. So thank you very much. Well, oh, thank you so much. I'm glad. Um, I'm glad that I, I, I feel like I'm always bad at interviews. <laughs> but it worked out. I, I don't know how you've been in other, in other interviews. Uh, I, I like to keep these as 
as chats, right? Because I find yep. you just open up much, much more. But the, the the number one thing, and I've got it circled here a couple of times when I was listening to the the doc projects, is um, you mentioned it. You mentioned it here. You mentioned it there. Is talk, yeah. talk, 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 talk. You had mentioned in the that you guys didn't do well as a Kerr family and talking, you know, when yep. you, when you were younger and it really sounds like you're, you, it sounds like you're just trying this on for the first time in, in, in some in, ways. Yeah. And that's amazing to me yeah. because that's, that's what I'm all about. I mean, Christ, the show is called talk about. I think it, it's what's interesting now. And that's what interests me is, is people who are connected to themselves in a way that is honest and real and, you know, it's the human experience and unapologetic in that way, but like just being authentic. Uh, I find that more interesting nowadays as I get older. I think that's what I'm embracing. You know, thanks. I love thanks it. For, thanks for checking those out. Hey, no worries at all. Thanks for sharing them. Thanks for being so candid. Is there any other things that you would like to, to end off with uh, before um, I, I let you get on with your, your day? No, I think I'm good. Good. I think, uh, yeah. I've I love it. You should. <laughs> Listen, man, uh, the, the people that you meet in your life, you, you kind of get surprised. I, I didn't know. Um, I'll be honest with you. When I looked at your photo on Facebook, I was like, I don't know what to make of this dude. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm going to get. It's not a good representation. Of who I am, <laughs> it's, but it's interesting because it makes yeah, me it's... look like a biker, but I'm not. Like, yeah. <laughs> You've been an absolute pleasure though, man. I'm going to include uh, links to this so people can find out, people can follow you on Insta or Instagram and Facebook. Um, you do have some pretty cool posts on, on Facebook. And, and I was actually just listening to uh, um, what was the, the album REM that you put at the top. Is it uh, oh, Adventures in Hi-Fi? Adventures in Hi-Fi. Yeah. I was on. listening to that before we came on air. Oh, uh, cool. You, you've got my interest peaked, my friend. I gotta, yeah. I think uh, an REM dive is is on the horizon. Seriously, check out Accelerate. You like rock. Accelerate is a very rocking album, and it's so cool. Like, yeah. So awesome. Check out Accelerate. Nobody talks about Accelerate because it's just one of their latest album, later albums, and they, I think people feel it, that later REM, and, and not with, unjustly, later REM is not as good. Uh, it is the worst era of REM, but Accelerate is... It's an incredible album and it's short, which is great. So I'll check it out. You go check out Skinny Puppy. I will. Um, and uh, and 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 shoot the shoot some more suggestions over, man. I, I've been I've been delving into all sorts of crazy music, so you might get some some shit that you've oh, never heard I, before. Seriously, I love talking music to people. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely if you want if you're opening those gates, I'm going to bug you about it. Wide open, my friend. It's awesome. wide open. Thank you okay. very much, it's, Bob. It's good talking to you, bud. It was great talking to you too. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye.